Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As anticipated, a government shutdown looms as a small band of GOP hardliners continue to block passage of measures to keep the government open. More aid to Ukraine remains a sticking point for Republicans who want to cut aid as Ukraine seeks more help from its partners. This as Ukrainian forces destroyed Russia's Black Sea Fleet headquarters. Tensions between China and the Philippines are rising after Manila dismantled the floating fence Beijing installed to block Filipino access to their internationally recognized territorial waters that Chinese officials claim as their own. North Korea has released uh, U.S. Army soldier Travis King uh, to American custody and growing talks between Israel and Saudi Arabian officials, a goal the Biden administration has been working on as part of an overarching regional peace deal. Joining us today to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend with the Center for a New American Security and a co- and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, the must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, it is always a pleasure having uh, all of you convene, especially since we are as geographically distributed, I think, this week as we've been uh, in a long time. Michael, uh, thanks uh, for uh, joining us. Uh, and I should note to everybody that we are taping uh, on Thursday night because of everybody's uh, crazy travel schedules and posting this program on Friday morning. Uh, Michael, as we record, uh, we're about two days from a government uh, closure or about a day and a half, depending on how you want to look at that. Uh, there's still some time to avert uh, one. What's your prognosis at this late hour? And what are all the dynamic factors, right? I mean, some GOP uh, uh, representatives, uh, you know, members in the House have proposed cutting Lloyd Austin's salary to a dollar from 238000 or whatever it is now, um, you know, to, to protest woke policies at the Pentagon and, and, and what have you. Where do we stand right now and what are the factors? It's like we're in the twilight zone. Uh, we're <laughs> okay. on, uh, on the verge of shutting down the government, but we don't know why. Right. I mean, the last shutdown we had in the last administration was over the border wall. Uh, the shutdown we had in 2013 was over Obamacare. But the, the, nobody knows for sure what these the outliers want. So it's very hard to placate them to keep the government open. Uh, so as we talked about last week, the, the plan for the Republicans this week and it continued to come together earlier this week was to pass four appropriations bills uh, and to show that they were serious about cutting spending and then pass a continuing resolution at the end of the week. But first they had to pass the rule, which they've been struggling with in the previous week on defense. And this rule would govern defense, uh, the agriculture bill, the state and foreign office bill, and the Homeland Security bill. Uh, and they did successfully pass this, this rule on Tuesday night. So that was, that was a victory. And they were able to begin debate on amendments on all these bills, which they were voting on some nights as late as 1.30 in the morning, all day, all night to try and move these along. And you mentioned one of the amendments that actually passed was Marjorie Taylor Greene's amendment to slash Lloyd Austin's salary to $1. Uh, and then she sent out a press release that saying she passed a provision that fired Lloyd Austin. That's not exactly true. And she also announced that she's still going to vote against the defense appropriations bill, even though uh, her amendment uh, passed. Um, so now here we are on Thursday, and the plan is to vote final passage on all four of those appropriations bills tonight. Earlier today, they decided to pull the agriculture bill because they did not think they had the votes to pass it. Uh, as of an hour ago, they decided to try and vote on agriculture, knowing that it will fail. They have at least 40 House Republicans that are against the agriculture bill. So we think that will fail. Uh, defense, is anybody's guess, that I think was the had the strongest chance of passage. Uh, and the other two bills, Homeland and State and Foreign Office, they just don't know if they had the votes uh, to pass those bills. But even if they do, that's still not going to prevent uh, the government from shutting down. Right. So that brings us to the CR, uh, the continuing resolution. So the Senate on Tuesday released their continuing resolution, which would keep the government open until November 17th. And it would provide six billion dollars in funding for Ukraine, which is below the president's uh, request. But it's also a shorter period of time. It would also provide some money for disaster relief. 
had no money in there for board security and no spending cuts that the House was demanding. Within 24 hours, the Senate now is looking to try and amend that CR to add money in there for border security uh, to try and get Republicans on board in the House. That CR in the Senate at the earliest will pass probably on, on Saturday, uh, possibly on Sunday after the government's already closed down, but probably on Saturday. But I doubt the House would even take it up and is dead on arrival in the House. The House still plans to vote on a CR on Friday, uh, but that has not been released yet. The text of that CR will be released later tonight. So we can guess what's in it. I'm sure there'll be deep spending cuts in it. Uh, there'll probably be uh, HR2, their border security legislation uh, attached to it. Um, and you know who knows what else, right? But there are at least eight earlier today, Republicans that said they would vote against the CR no matter what, right? So regardless of what McCarthy does, it looks like we're headed for shutdown. Then to make matters worse, about uh, two hours ago, the House Freedom Caucus sent uh, McCarthy a letter signed by all 27 of them, so it's 27 members, with six demands in order to uh, consider a stopgap spending member, a spending, spending me uh, uh, measure. One of their demands is that McCarthy must publicly refute and reject the Schumer-McConnell continued resolution that's coming over uh, from, from the Senate. So they continue to be worlds apart. And, and if that isn't bad enough, you know, today uh, was their first uh, impeachment hearing. Uh, on the impeachment inquiry for, for uh, President Biden. And, you know, they, they, they pick witnesses that have no firsthand knowledge of Biden family's uh, financial dealings. They had a forensic accountant, a former uh, DOJ tax official, a constitutional lawyer. And it turns out that two of the witnesses that were to Republican witnesses said, said outright that as of now, there's not enough evidence to impeach the president. Right. And Jonathan Turley, who's a constitutional scholar, said, I do not believe the current evidence would support articles of impeachment. Uh, and a GOP aide, apparently, who works uh, for the committee, said, you know, picking witnesses that refute House Republicans' arguments for impeachment is mind-blowing. And my favorite line is Congressman Moskowitz, who's a Democrat from Florida, said to the chairman, Chairman Comer, as a former director of emergency management, I know a disaster when I see one. So this has not been a good day, and this day is still far from over. Um, uh, and, and so where does this put... Uh, everything else. And, um, you know, I mean, you, you've brought all of the themes and elements uh, together, right? Um, the sense is that if this is a short shutdown, even though these are d uh, very disruptive and Jim, you know, explained the impact because he's lived through several of these uh, himself and how negative it is, right? I mean, the notices have already gone out to a session, you know, essential government employees, non-essential employees who will have to work without pay, who, you know, I mean, it's it's a disaster, but as long as it's a short one, it's not as bad of a disaster, especially economically, right? What does this set us up in terms of its contours on what it is we should be expecting over the next, right? I mean, so if if we have a shutdown and we don't know why, it's still a shutdown, Um Right. So what does this tell us about the period that we're going to be going into through the end of the year? Oh, it's 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 spells doom for the end of the year, because uh, I mean, this would even if we get a CR to pass, we're going to be up against another deadline for another shutdown in November or in December, whenever this CR expires, because they will not be able to have passed the conference, all the appropriations bills uh, by then. Um, I personally do not believe that this is going to be a short shutdown. Uh, McCarthy is already you know, trying to get Biden involved in this discussion just like he did on the debt ceiling. But those dynamics were very different. And Biden feels, and I think rightfully so, that he made a deal. Uh, and that deal was set in order to avert something like this. They agreed on lower spending numbers. They, they passed it into law in both the House and the Senate, and the Republicans have reneged on that deal. So I think the Democrats are going to milk this for everything they can, um, that a shutdown is going to be very painful. And it's going to be very painful for Republicans because they're the ones who shut the government down. They have 18 seats that they hold that Biden won. And those folks are going to be hearing it from you know parents who have kids in the military that aren't being paid, from people who are standing on long lines uh, at the airport because we furloughed air traffic controllers. Um, you know, The list goes on and on and on. And I think that we're and in the end, I don't think the Democrats are going to negotiate. And if they do negotiate, as we said in the past, they're going to demand an end to this impeachment inquiry, which I don't think the Republicans are going to be willing to give at this point. So um, I, I think we're in for a long shutdown. I hope I'm wrong, but I think How we're long? in for a long shutdown. How long? Uh, I would say uh, well over two weeks, if not four weeks. Okay. Which some people put, right, uh, two weeks they put into short 
one month, not so good. Dove, uh, your sense on where we are and what the impact and implications of this are, are going to be and whether or not any, I mean, you know what I mean? We're, we're in a logic-free, fact-free, dietetic world of fog. I mean, I don't even know how to put it. I'm trying to be as polite as I can be on a family program. Uh, without resorting to profanity. So, you know, I mean, how, do, how does this get sorted out from from your standpoint, given that you talked to some of the folks on the Hill, like Michael does? Yeah, and I was actually on the Hill today. Uh, and uh, last night I was talking to some people as well. So there's a lot of speculation that, well, first of all, uh, I agree with Michael. I don't think it's going to go 30 days. Remember, the longest one in the last 10 years went 31 um, it'll be less than that. And the reason I say that is because of what I heard, which is that McCarthy is waiting to be, quote unquote, pressured into making a deal. And the deal he has to make, obviously, is with Jeffries and the Democratic leadership. And there will be a price to pay. But and here maybe I'm a little different from Michael on this. McCarthy wants to stay speaker. He cuts a deal with the Democrats. He stays speaker. He no longer has all the Republicans, but he's going to get a lot more Republicans than people realize, including those Republicans in vulnerable districts who will be able to say, look, I say, I work to save the country. I think that it's going to take a couple of weeks for public outrage to really manifest itself, for the finger pointing to go on beyond anybody's tolerance. And at that point, McCarthy has a choice. If he sticks to the Republican line, he's still vulnerable to be thrown out by one vote because the Democrats won't support him and he'll lose enough Republicans to get thrown out. If he cuts a deal, it's a terrible deal in one sense for him. But in another sense, the guy who stood for 15 rounds of getting speaker remains speaker. And I think ultimately that's going to get him to cut a deal with the Democrats, return to the deal that was already passed into law, as Michael said, some kind of deal on the impeachment thing, which a lot of Republicans think is crazy anyway and a loser, uh, and he keeps his job. So uh, is to me, uh, the glass is not more than half full, but it is half full. Michael, the, you know, your sense uh, on that and, and whether McCarthy keeps his job. Look, I'm not... I'm rooting for McCarthy here, right? I'd like to see him keep his job. I think that um, the only way to do so is to make a deal with Democrats, as, as, as Dove said. Um, I just think that it was a huge tactical error to announce an impeachment inquiry two weeks ago because that kind of cuts off his lifeline. So if the Democrats are going to help him, I think they're going to insist that that inquiry stop. And they've done, you know, a, 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 a tremendous, you know, a, a, a big sell job on their folks on this. And I think that's going to be, and then, and also Trump is there looming in the background. Trump doesn't want this impeachment inquiry stopped. He wants it to go forward. And frankly, Trump wants a shutdown too, because he mistakenly thinks that that stops the DOJ from investigating him because it, they, they won't be funded. Um, but this is not true. So I, I just think Kevin is in a very, very tough box and he continues to be betrayed by these folks on the right who he continues to placate, but it's just never enough for them. Uh, so I, 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 and I, and a lot of them will only be happy when he's gone. I mean, Matt Gates continues to threaten a motion to vacate on a regular basis. And he was on the floor the other day saying, you know, the one thing I agree with my democratic colleagues is that for the last eight months, the house has been poorly led. And he says, my democratic colleagues will have an opportunity to do something about that too. And we'll see if they bail out our failed speaker. Um, so, uh, he's, you know, he throws that out there every week and he continues to fundraise off it like crazy. Uh, I have gotten several fundraising solicitations from him, uh, in the last day. And he sent out one uh, on Tuesday, uh, even saying it's not Biden's fault where we are. Uh, and it's not Congress's fault. It's GOP leadership's fault. So, um, you know, no, these it's, are their it's his fault. It's his fault. That it's we totally his fault. fault. <laughs> it totally is. Right. Um, but, but this but, is, this is why I say that I think the one way McCarthy can get out from under these 25 or 30 crazies is to cut a deal with the Democrats. And the crazies will go nuts if he stops the impeachment process. But I think, and I'm willing to bet this, that at least 100 Republicans will breathe a sigh of relief. And that'll keep him in power and allow him ultimately to ignore these guys. Otherwise, as Michael says, 
He's a slave to them, and they've got that sword of Damocles over him the whole time. And I think this gives him an opportunity to get out from under it. Uh, let me uh, quickly, uh, Michael, uh, ask you one thing because uh, you've you've got to uh, jump uh, in in a moment anyway. Um, I, I mean, every time uh, Trump is indicted, it makes him stronger. He's he's like Voldemort, uh, and um, ultimately, this latest um, move uh, in New York. Uh, where uh, the former president's uh, enterprise, the Trump Organization, is accused of overvaluing its real estate properties. Uh, you know, I mean, there are even questions about whether or not the Mar-a-Lago property is fairly valued. Uh, it has suspended uh, the business licenses, put fines on his uh, attorneys by saying that you know you guys are you know, basically engaging not in legal practices, but crazy talk that I've warned you not to engage in. And people are like, oh, this is the end, you know, and, and you know, there might be a special master and these properties put under receivership. And we find many of these times, you know, Trump appeals, I mean, he's going to, that he gets out of it. I mean, how, how serious are any of these things? And are they any impediment whatsoever to him being elected president of the United States again? Certainly, like it's not affecting his ability to be nominated. I, I, I don't. I, I don't think this matters uh, one bit. Uh, first of all, I, I doubt that Fox News, Newsmax, No AN are even covering this. So, and if they are, they're covering it from the fact that this is more weaponization of government against you know poor woe is you know Donald Trump. So, uh, and and frankly, I think last night's debate was completely insignificant too. I mean, if you look at the polls, where where we are, if you take Donald Trump's numbers. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and um, and um, DeSantis, you got eighty percent of the electorate there, the Republican electorate. So the, the party is lost. The, the hope that one of these other candidates is going to rise up, or that the governor of Virginia now is going to come in and save the day, I just think is all fantasy. Uh, that right. the party is lost. They're going to go the way of the Whigs, and then we have to figure out, you know, where we go post post Trump. I, I I think that's just. Just stunning. You're, by the way, you, you, 10 points on the Whigs uh, <laughs> and, and bringing them into it. You know, I thought you might go Federalist, but it's it's good. You went you went Whig on that. So nicely, nicely done. Um, and I, I, a man of history. Uh, and very quickly, what does this mean for Ukraine aid? Uh, ultimately, uh, President Zelensky was here. President Biden is talking about uh, more assistance. Uh, we're, you know, we're going to get Jim's take on a lot of this because there are a lot of questions uh, to be asked. But what does this ultimately mean for Ukraine aid? Does that get cleared somehow or or not? And and what does this delay even mean in it? Well, it's a really good question. And look, I was just with um, two senior congressmen on the Appropriations Committee about three hours ago who both feel that the Ukraine aid will pass before the end of the year. But um, we have some major roadblocks leading up to that. Now, you saw when they were debating amendments on defense appropriations, that the two amendments were defeated to strip the Ukraine aid out and, and, and the training aid. But uh, when this amendment was voted on, on the, when the NDAA was on the floor, 70 Republicans voted in favor of it. Now about 100 are voting in favor of it. So they continue to lose more support among Republicans. However, those amendments were defeated. But then leadership looks at this and says, oh crap, we can't pass the defense appropriations bills off the floor with just Republican votes. If the Ukraine is in there, so they can be in the special session of the Rules Committee last night at 930 to take the Ukraine aid out, even though the amendments had failed. So now the $300 million in Ukraine funding in the defense appropriations bill is going to be considered as separate legislation, which is not clear as to when that legislation will be considered. And we still need to figure out how we're going to fund them, obviously, to the end of this calendar year and how we're going to fund them next year. There's still, I personally think, this fantasy that there's going to be this major China supplemental at the end of the year, where we're going to make up for our shortfalls uh, to, to su support our efforts to compete with China, and we're going to put some Ukraine money in there. Senate Democrats are rightfully going to request more money for non-defense discretionary spending, uh, and then all of a sudden you got this big bloated supplemental that I don't think stands a ch chance in the House. So uh, we, we, we this is going to be a very hard road to hoe, but I think if there was a freestanding Ukraine bill that went to the floor, that would pass overwhelmingly in both chambers. But again, the president needs to make the case to the American people as to why this is important to our freedom and our democracy. And he has not done that. That is why support continues to slip. 
Um, I, I think it's extraordinary uh, that in some cases, this administration does the right things and, and spends zero time selling them. Uh, you know, they were like, okay, well, we're, we're getting all this great stuff done. At the end of the day, nobody knows that if you're not trumpeting it or not making the case to the American people, why it's important. Couldn't agree with you uh, more. Uh, Dove, we're going to go to you uh, briefly before we go to Jim. But before we do that, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Spirit Air Systems sponsored our coverage of of the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and uh, trade show. Michael, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, have a great uh, weekend and uh, Gamar Tov to both you and uh, to uh, Dove. Thanks very much for joining us. Have a great weekend and, and have you on next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Um, Dove, uh, just uh, really quickly, because you had one point to add on Ukraine aid because of um, yeah. some of the conversations you had last night. Go ahead. Yeah, the North Atlantic Council representatives were in town and I spoke to a number of them. And I also spoke to some of our senior people uh, from NATO. And the bottom line is they've been reassured. Uh, they visited the Hill, spoke to senators in particular, uh, including the new uh, chairman of the of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Cardin. Um, they obviously didn't speak to the crazies, but they did speak to folks and they seem to be reassured that the Ukraine money will be coming. Uh, what worries our people, of course, uh, in, in NATO is that, uh, as Michael has pointed out, that money's not going to last more than a couple of months, three months at most. And then what? Uh, but at least for the moment, uh, people seem placated. They seem to feel and maybe Jim can reinforce that or question it. But my impression was they seemed to feel that, um, OK, the United States is still there and they ha are being pushed to to do their part. That came across very clearly to them from the people on the Hill. Um, Jim, uh, you are in uh, Helsinki at this very late hour as we uh, record this. Uh, and I join you from Paris. Um Walk us through a little bit about what you're hearing uh, from Helsinki and comment a little bit on, on Dove's uh, point uh, about support for Ukraine uh, and where we stand. Right? I mean, at least the polls uh, in Europe uh, indicate support, uh, continuing support for uh, Ukraine uh, actions like striking the Black Sea Fleet headquarters. Um, you know, encourages people that uh, this is not a complete stalemate and the Ukrainians are able to hit back. Um, walk, walk us through what are some of the messages and the takeaways that you have uh, for Washington from Helsinki. Well, it's interesting. Helsinki, number one, is very solid in their support for Ukraine. And I've heard that not just from government officials here, but from think tank people and, and media people. Uh, there is no wavering here. And uh, there's a feeling that uh, Europe is pretty solid as well. And so, you know, I've been saying that and others on your show, but it's good to be here in Europe and to hear it from Europeans as well. So, uh, but in terms of the United States and how they look on things here, I'm glad that the NAC uh, perm reps had a good time on the Hill and and were reassured and have, have come away reassured. But you know, speaking personally, I don't think you can take anything to the bank that you hear on the Hill. Uh, I think I, I think we have to continue to hedge uh, in terms of, of assistance to Ukraine. We have to hedge that things might not go well on the Hill. Um, and I think we have to, in terms of uh, us and with Washington, we're going to have to keep trying to make the case both on the Hill and to the American people. If the administration is not going to do it, then it's going to be up to us to make the case uh, that we've got to keep the, um, the assistance going. Uh, Finland has made a very strong case on... Uh, on the importance of Ukraine winning here uh, and stopping the Russians, uh, the, the, what this fight means, not just to Finland, but also to Europe as well and the United States. They certainly make the case very well. And so it goes back to what Michael was saying and Dove. We have got to get this administration to make the case to the Hill and to the American people how important this is. So that's the message I'm getting here. Um, I, again, with the NAC, I, I guess they'll go back to Brussels and maybe they'll feel a little better. But I would say you know, don't uh, don't don't bet on what you heard there necessarily being the case in the next couple of months. They have to keep the pressure up, too. We can't sit back 
and think things are going to go as well as they might have heard on the Hill where they're, they're the visitors up there and they're speaking to members of Congress and, and they probably blew, uh, you know, sunshine at them, you know, who knows? Right. So, so, you know, coming away from this, I, I, I hope, you know, like Michael said, I, I, I hope for the best, but I'm not betting on it coming off the Hill. The, the only wonderful. thing I would, the only thing I would add to that is that I do know that Senator Cardin really dumped all over the Turkish representative uh, and, what I heard was that he was extremely blunt. So hopefully he was as blunt about supporting Ukraine or saying that he would support Ukraine as he was about dumping on the Turk, who apparently was not very happy to be dumped on. Um, what is, uh, Jim, you know, you said alternate measures. What what does that mean? In, in terms of hedging? Yes. Well, so I, I think what we've got to do is is hedge. If I were European country. If I was a NATO ally, if I was a big supporter of Ukraine, I think they need to be thinking about how can they play a, a quicker, better role in terms of supporting in greater amounts Ukraine if we run if we run into trouble with the American Congress or with the United States uh, in terms of assistance. If the assistance from the U.S. slows down, um, if the assistance from the U.S. becomes uh, spotty when it comes to 155 millimeter ammo, some of the things we know Ukraine needs a lot of. Europe needs to be ready to fill that gap. Um, you know, this is this is something where, you know, we don't want European allies to become complacent that in fact things are going to be okay on the hill. We don't right. know, and that means that we've got to depend on the Europeans to fill the gaps, and they can't start uh, when things get bad. They have to be planning for something now, uh, just in case, and that means ramping up one five five. I know that they're trying to do that. I know they've got industrial problems with doing that, but it makes even more urgent the European role in terms of supporting Ukraine, not because it's the right thing to do, but also because the U.S. might be running into turbulence over the next year and Ukraine will depend on uh, the Europeans to step in and provide certainly the, the bread and butter of military assistance like the ammo. Uh, like uh, the uh, air defense systems and the ammo for that. There's a lot that Europe can do to fill the gaps, but they got to be thinking about that now and not be complacent if their perm rep comes back from this trip to Washington saying, don't worry, things are going to be fine. I hope so. Maybe they will be, but they should be hedging anyway. Uh, and that's that's what I, I was talking about in terms of, of a European role. Right. Um, how important is what we're seeing in uh, Slovakia? I mean, there are a whole bunch of signs, even though, you know, the overall level of support for Ukraine remains admirably high uh, in Europe. And I think overall, even in the United States, even though it's not as much in the headlines now, uh, which which is something that's always a concern, um, you, you have uh, the polls over over the green issue uh, saying they're going to, you know, that they're suspending uh, support. You now have the Russian disinformation campaigns being very successful in Slovakia, basically getting new leadership there. Hungary is a long-term uh, Russian project. And even in Canada, we're seeing uh, implications, right? Yaroslav Hunka um, was invited by the Speaker of the House of Commons uh, in uh, uh, Ottawa. He did not know, you know, he looked at this as one of my 98-year-old constituents, not he was a Ukrainian who was fighting in a Nazi uh, nationality brigade, uh, you know, which is a very problematic thing and feeds into the whole Russian narrative. Zelensky had no idea who this was and gave him a fist pump. And the Poles are now like, all right, we need this guy extradited and have him prosecuted as a war criminal. You know, I, I mean, I, there are all these signs that whether it's with Poles or anybody else, they may talk about support, but then there are all of these underlying issues, even if there are elections in Poland. I, I don't I never think that's a good excuse for bad behavior. Talk to us a little bit about all of these little themes we're seeing, and especially the Slovakian campaign, because the Russians are playing a long game. They're not only arming up, they're going to dig out those foundations. Uh, well, of support for that, Ukraine. Yeah, and the Russians do play a long game, and they're very good at that, particularly meddling in European affairs. That's what they do. They're opportunistic as well. And a lot of times European nations, as well as ourselves and the Canadians, it sounds like we hand the, an opportunity to Russia to exploit, and, and that's certainly what they, they do. And, and that's happening in Slovakia too. On Canada, I, just, I think that was 
an unfortunate mistake. <laughs> right. <laughs> agreed. And, agreed. I, a- Anthony Rota, uh, who has stepped down, you know, admitted I, you know, bad staff work. I mean, he said, oh, I thought I was inviting a World War II Ukrainian hero to this thing. Uh, I didn't know he was a <laughs> Well, I I know. Well, being a former staffer myself, as soon as I heard about this, I just I just grabbed my my forehead and said, oh, my God, the poor staffer who screwed that one up. I could just imagine uh, that happening in the Pentagon, too. Uh, But but that aside, uh, you know, so I'm not so worried about that, although I I do think it's tragic. But I, I, I think I think in terms of what we're seeing, whether it's Slovakia or Poland or Turkey or across Europe, and I mentioned this last time, too. This is this is what happens in Europe. These these little instances that happen are driven by domestic politics or are driven by personal conflicts or something. Poland is having an election and it's a close one. Um, And so you're going to see these kinds of things popping out because when it comes to elections and people's, you know, careers or whatever, they care more about winning an election than than being a stooge for the Russians. And so that's what we're seeing here is uh, in Poland. And uh, and you just you want to pull your hair and go, this is just terrible for the for, for what's happening in terms of Ukraine. But it's something that comes out of elections. It's the same thing with FICO in, in Slovakia. It's a you know, it's an election time there. And, and we're going to just have to deal with um, the uh, the squeaks and squawks that come out of a democracy. We've got it, too. So um, so I'm so so personally, I don't worry about the little instances, but I do think, though, with if FICO does come in and we've we get a reactionary right winger in there and we've got problems with Hungary and some problems with Poland as well and some other countries, too. Um, you know, this this backsliding has worried a lot of people for a long time now in terms of backsliding and democracy in Europe. Um, right. that's something that comes and goes in Europe too. So you can't get too worried about it, but this is a bad time for this kind of thing happening, uh, when we need to have unity and we need to have everyone pulling hard when it comes to supporting Ukraine. So it's something to worry about. Yes. In terms of the bigger picture of that, of that backsliding, but in terms of the squeaks and squawks, uh, that's just how things are in Europe and in the U S too. And Canada sounds like, uh, and we're going to have to just live with that, knowing full well this is, gives the opportunistic uh, Russians an opportunity to cause cause trouble in the rear area. Um, l- let me ask you uh, one more uh, question, which is on armaments, right? So the good news is M1 tanks are in Ukraine. Um, as I mentioned, the Ukrainians had a successful strike on uh, Russia's Black Sea Fleet uh, headquarters. They may not have killed the commander of it. We still don't know. The Russians have released videos of him, uh, you know, apparently being alive. But they did kill a lot of people, uh, including those who were involved directly in uh, planning of uh, operations. At the same time, last week, like we have so many times over the last 18 months, uh, you know, been talking about ATACMs and other systems. The good news is the administration, I think Dov has artfully said it, does give capability, just maybe not as quickly as uh, as everybody would like. But I mean, on ATACMs, it gets dragged out all the time as we're on the verge and then nothing happens. Where you know, A, do M1s change anything meaningfully at this point, or are they better for the next fighting season? And is the administration going to make a decision on ATACMs or not? Well, you know, because we had the uh, word that it was going to be on the, uh, you know, area denial one with cluster munitions as opposed to the precision strike. The Ukrainians are using the storm shadow and scalp to great effect. Uh, actually, as a precision strike weapon, where, where are we on all of these, and how do these dynamics change anything in the, the vector of this war ultimately? Well, there's no such thing as a silver bullet, uh, you know, right. in terms of this conflict. Uh, this is uh, this is something to, to always keep in mind. It's, this is a grueling pick and shovel, uh, bloody hell, uh, break breaking through obstacles, and we're seeing some progress on that. But in terms of the of the Abrams that have arrived, there's just a handful of them, and they've arrived earlier than we than we thought. This this small group, um, and there'll be others dribbling in, I'm sure, towards through the end of the year. This isn't something we're going to see on, on the battlefield, I don't think, uh, anytime soon. They're they're going to be something that'll be helpful when there's a breakout, when they're finally able to breach that final obstacle uh, in, in in an area, and they're able to break through the. Uh, the defenses and try to route uh, the Russian 
reserves and reinforcements that are behind those obstacles. It'll be good to have that kind of armor and that maneuverability then. But right now, I don't think they're going to. Uh, there's not enough of them really to 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 uh, to be, to appear on the battlefield at this stage. This isn't a, this is this is digging up mines. That's where we are right now. It's strikers and things like that. It's not this kind of armor. But I I think um, there'll come a time, and hopefully there'll be enough of the Abrams to to provide a good punch um, if they're if they're able to to breach the obstacles and, and move through the leopards too as well. Um, and the uh, challengers from the from the UK. So, so I think I think we're going to see that uh, the Abrams later, maybe next year, uh, maybe the next fighting season, uh, to have an impact. But it won't be a silver bullet. But it's going to be an improvement over what they've got now. But so much depends on what they're able to do before the rains start really setting in and slowing things up in terms of breaching those obstacles in the south. That's where they're going to have the greatest ability, I think, right now. Uh, to do some breaching is is down there. We'll have to see what happens. On the att attackums, I was surprised that they weren't announced last week. It certainly sounded like the drum beats coming out of the White House was we're getting ready to announce it, and they didn't. Uh, I'm hoping that whatever the reason was, that they're going to announce them pretty soon. And again, attackums are not the silver bullet either. Uh, there's other uh, munitions. You mentioned some of them: the Storm Shadows, Scout, those others. Uh, and and hopefully a uh, missile coming out of Germany at some point too, that has deep strike capability. The attackums is going to be a great addition to that. And uh, and and right now the only game in town really in terms of of really making an impact on the Russians are these deep strike, whether it's through drones hitting hitting the headquarters that we saw there in Crimea, or whether it is continuing to go after uh, logistics and command and control. That's what we're that's right now while we're getting through the obstacles. That's a major game in town and the attackums will be helpful there. Uh, and I just wish they would hurry up and get them there because uh, they're running out of, I think, the storm shadow and this type of thing because they're using quite a bit of them. So, uh, right. yeah, I, I, I we're just in this uh, frustrating phase, not just of the offensive trying to get through obstacles, but on the administration um, providing a steady stream of assistance and upgrading some of that to include the, the attackments. But, but we're just going to have to, you know, we're going to have to just bear with this. Uh, and, and the people who are going to pay the price are the Ukrainian soldiers who not, don't have the tools that they really need, including air cover, by the way, and a lot of the demining equipment that I sure wish had been sent six months ago rather than over the past month or two. Um, I should uh, point out, Dove's got a great piece. A Patriot missile system beats Russia's hypersonics. Why upgrading high-tech weapons matters. Uh, and that's in uh, appeared uh, in, in uh, the messenger and a point that Dove has uh, actually made uh, in the past. Patrick, you've been exceptionally patient. Uh, and all, you know, while all of our attention is on government shutdowns, uh, and what's going on uh, with the Ukrainians and and the the, the, you know, the unfortunate uh, the Ukrainians being an unfortunate hostage in the Washington political scene. Uh, it was a big week in Asia. North Korea ejected uh, the U.S. Army soldier Travis King, who defected across the border in Panmunjom uh, uh, some uh, weeks ago. Uh, if I if memory serves correctly, he's now back in American custody. It doesn't appear Washington made any uh, concessions. You made a very funny joke as we were going back and forth and preparing for this. What happened and what's it mean as the North Koreans don't do anything uh, that's not a message? Well, Travis King is a very lucky man. Um, when he fled across the demilitarized zone in early July, he could have ended up losing his life or never getting out of North Korea. Instead, relatively shortly thereafter, North Korea has voluntarily given him over to the Chinese, who then gave him back to the Americans, and he's now back in Texas. He'll undoubtedly be dishonorably discharged after a uniform court of military justice goes through procedures. But hopefully he'll have a second chance in life as a civilian and can get his life together. He's only a 23-year-old young man who was uh, clearly caught up in some bad decisions. Now, for North Korea, though, um, you know this is really about China and Russia and leveraging those two major partners of North Korea against each other but also against the United States for advantage, even as Kim Jong-un is doubling down on nuclear weapons. He went to the parliament and they got a, a new law passed, not, not very difficult for him to do, 
you know, uh, doubling down on permanent nuclear status, but the need to exponentially increase their nuclear output. Um, so he's feeling his oats about uh, North Korea's nuclear power, especially now that he's got Russia and Vladimir Putin as his big partner. And there were Russian jets flying in and out of Pyongyang this past week. Not clear what's on them. Um, but uh, again, the nuclear side of this is very important. The fact that he handed Travis Kemp, uh, you know, King over to the Chinese as well, to me, was a bit of a sop to Beijing to try to reassure the Chinese that uh, even though Kim is building up his nuclear weapons program, he is not trying to destabilize the peninsula. That's the message he's probably trying to send to Beijing, because when you ask why hasn't North Korea still conducted that seventh nuclear test we keep expecting, and we've been expecting since last year, uh, a lot of people still think it's Chinese pressure, that there's a bit of a red line, uh, and, and who knows. But the it's not that the Chinese want to do the North Korea any favors, or they want to, and they don't want to do us any favors. They're just looking after their own Chinese interests. They want a stable, relatively stable border, even while they're happy to see Russia, North Korea, Iran, and others stick it to the Americans. So this is the uh, sort of happy ending to the Travis King affair in terms of his North Korea passage. Um, and uh, and now we move sort of, if we're talking about movies, we move from The Fugitive to Dr. Strangelove with Kim Jong-un, you know, talking about this exponential nuclear arms race that he wants to bring down. Um, and, and this was a week when the South Koreans held once in a decade a military parade in Seoul, um, which was, uh, you know, more North Korean-like than South Korean-like. Um, right. And it was also a week when um, both the United States and the South Korean navies were starting up yet one more exercise, this one in the East Sea, to do anti-submarine warfare drills. Um, I, I should just uh, give our audience a quick reminder to check out our weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervillo and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, uh, that I co-host with uh, our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Um Talk to us uh, a little bit, uh, right? I mean, as you were you were talking about, uh, you know, the the James Bond villain who lives in uh, North Korea. The Chinese are no different in some respects, uh, having militarized the South China Sea, uh, getting very aggressive. New York Times did a terrific piece, uh, you know, like a very frontline view of what it's like. Uh, to be subjected to Chinese intimidation, whether they're with, uh, you know, quote, fishing or militia ships that are not fishing vessels, really, uh, but they're to harass how uh, the island uh, bases are used that are militarized and have air defense capabilities uh, on them. In the wake of the recent mutual defense agreement uh, between Washington and Manila, Manila has become increasingly assertive with China. Uh, the Philippine Coast Guard uh, deployed frogmen who uh, cut a couple of hundred meter long anchored barrier uh, that China planted to keep the Filipinos uh, from, you know, I mean, amateurishly uh, from accessing their own uh, internationally recognized territorial waters that China illegally claims. Where are we heading? Because there's a sense that the Chinese, that the Filipino muscularity, along with China's efforts uh, to assert control, um, are really going to backfire and we're going to end up in a bad situation. And how do you square this rising, these rising tensions uh, and intimidation, whether it's with the Vietnamese or whether it's with Chinese or, excuse me, with Japanese or anybody else, with sort of the Chinese occasionally playing a constructive role like tamping down North Korea's nuclear capability? Well, the Chinese would argue that this has always been their territory. These have always been their claims. Now they're just being more openly assertive about it. And this was an assertiveness that we saw well before uh, President Marcos uh, came on the scene last year um, and uh, reinvigorated the U.S.-Philippine alliance. And that gave Manila a bit more uh, confidence to take on the Chinese and indeed one Philippine Coast Guard officer who's been writing a lot about this on social media uh, and is well-informed said, look, the goal of cutting that floating barrier was to show the Filipinos, but also the world, that we Filipinos are not going to back down. We're going to actually stand up against the the bully, the bully being China. Um, right. And so uh, the problem with that is we go back to, say, the original Scarborough Shoal standoff of 2012, um, when Chinese ended up commandeering it ever since. And that's why 
cutting the barrier to allow Filipino fishermen in uh, is part of this ongoing contest now, 11 years later, is how much does this escalate? Um, you know, whether it's second Thomas Shoal in the Spratly Islands, and that, by the way, was the centerpiece of the New York Times expose where they had a, their cruise for four days in the Spratly Islands, going through and watching water canning, you know, watching the, the horns, um, the harassment of ships, the blocking maneuvers of the Chinese. Um, this is how Chinese is pr promoting uh, its sovereignty assertion. Uh, these are sovereignty assertion operations, literally. And um, now you have the Philippines standing up saying, hey, we've got American backing, our ally. So you're asking, Vago, the big question, what happens to these, uh, you know, gray zone uh, or, or um, you know, confrontational operations? And, and we'll, we don't know where they're going to escalate or how far they'll escalate. Um, and that's part of the backdrop to the U.S.-China relationship. Um, and the U.S.-China relationship, which continues to dominate both regional and Washington and Beijing foreign policy agendas, is a, an ever-changing mix of uh, positive and negative developments. There have been a few positive developments because, again, we're heading towards San Francisco in November with a likely summit, uh, the first summit since the first face-to-face -face meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping happened in Bali last November. The second, presumably, will happen in San Francisco or in the U.S., uh, in this November, and that's only weeks away. Uh, and, and what's happened? What are what are Xi and Biden doing to prepare for this? Well, it's interesting. Xi Jinping has, of course, been hosting the uh, Asian Games in um, Hangzhou, um, just south of uh, Shanghai. And there he was giving speeches about the new development concept led by technology. He hosted uh, the Syrian president, Assad, made a big deal of their new strategic partnership, talked about how color revolutions had been led by and instigated by the United States, um, and that these were now producing Syrian-led and Syrian-owned principles. And you're thinking, right, um, you know, this this is uh, a, a great relationship. Syria, it's like Russia's relationship with Kim Jong-un, um, and the United States is left scratching its head saying, these are the partners of the, the big powers we're dealing with, um, but they mean it sincerely. They They think this is great. And, and, and Putin still is due to go to China for the Belt and Road Forum that's coming up in mid-October. And he's announced that he's bringing the heads of Russian energy giants, uh, Gazprom and Rosneft. No big surprise there. Energy is something China really needs. So Russia thinks it has leverage, and it does have some leverage over Xi Jinping. So that relationship, you know, China, Russia, North Korea, Syria, Iran... You know, those countries are pretty tightly knit together in, in sort of pushing back on the United States. President uh, Biden, meanwhile, hosted uh, the Pacific Island Nations leaders at the White right. House. Uh, this was the second annual Pacific Island Summit. And it's both the 14 South uh, Pacific Island countries. He also had the representatives of the uh, Compacts of Free Association uh, Nations that sort of cut across Central Pacific. Um, and these are pretty small uh, entities, obviously, and um, small bits of money that we're talking about. But it's important to show that the U.S. is intent on engaging uh, very important, geographically, strategically important, at least, uh, areas uh, that are meeting them on their terms. So they're mostly not military issues. They're mostly economic issues, climate change and illegal fishing. But in one case, Palau, uh, talking about maybe stationing PAC-3 uh, Patriot missile systems there, to protect the over-the-horizon radars that are going to be installed for air and maritime domain awareness. And these are important because who was recently in Palau with the U.S.? Uh, it was Taiwan military officials last month looking at test firing these PAC-3 systems. So these things are not unrelated to kinetic scenarios between U.S. and China over Taiwan, and yet they're dealing with very long-term relations comprehensive relations with many small entities and countries, not just the bigger allies and partners. Um, abs absolutely uh, fascinating dynamics. Let me just ask you very, very briefly, uh, because I want to go to Dove on the uh, Israeli-Saudi talks, uh, as well as uh, the extraordinary situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, and briefly on uh, uh, Donald, uh, former President Trump's uh, threatening of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, or at least language that has precipitated that. And I've got to get um, uh, his, his take on that. 
are the Chinese beginning to realize they've massively miscalculated here, uh, Patrick? Because mm-hmm. virtually everything that they've done in the last couple of years is actually really badly backfired on them. Well, there are multiple levels to answer that question. One, from Xi Jinping and the leadership of the Communist Party, they never say whether they make mistakes. It doesn't mean they don't think they've made them. We just don't know. Um, obviously, there are intellectuals still who are able to write and speak more freely um, and frequently. And and some of them do express, uh, even if indirectly and obliquely, that maybe China has made some uh, not the best choices. Um, these are very difficult issues. The State Department, by the way, just came out with a brand new report this week, which I commend you on, on, on the website, on how China seeks to shape the global environment and the the information manipulation, the overt and covert influence operations, the focus on the narrative war, all of these things we've read about in a lot of studies and books. Nonetheless, it's interesting to see that the Biden administration, U.S. government policy, State Department has a report, first ever, uh-huh. on this issue out uh, as of this week. Um, and it shows that um, we don't expect China to be backing down from its assertiveness. We don't expect them to be admitting mistakes. Um, and indeed, on this issue of you know where the U.S. and China are heading with the summit, and let's just take one of the military baskets of issues, the cybersecurity discussion. So the U.S. and China did hold this week a initial working level U.S.-China cybersecurity discussion in, in, in which the U.S. officials uh, sort of reported out the summary of the latest U.S. cyber strategy, but trying to bring uh, and entice the Chinese into a discussion about uh, cyber cooperation as a confidence-building measure per the 2014 agreement between U.S. and China to to always notify each other if we have any major military developments, in this case, a new cyber strategy. Um, I don't want to have a readout of that meeting, um, but based on what the administration officials are saying, what Chinese officials are saying after that meeting about cyber in general, it's a source of greater contention than cooperation. So, um, you know, it's important to try to cooperate in, in, on issues like cyber. Uh, and yet at the same time, you have uh, a variety of reports uh, back and forth from Beijing and Washington and elsewhere this week and every week uh, about what the other is doing to the other about uh, cyber hacking, cyber theft, uh, cyber influence operations, and so on. Um, last thing I'd say this week that was very important to recognize uh, is that Taiwan launched its indigenously developed submarine, which is going to go into sea trials in October. Um, and that's uh, a, a real hats off to the Taiwanese to to build that indigenously. When Tsai Nguyen came in in 2016, uh, talking about, hey, we're going to build these indigenous subs to replace both the old World War II U.S. guppy subs and the two Dutch subs from the 1980s. You know, people right. said, well, that'll take forever. Well, it turns out it, it took this long. So it, it didn't take forever. Um, and we'll see how the, the sea trials go and whether it's delivered on time to the Navy next year. But it's the first of several uh, in this class. Um, as a uh, longtime uh, fan of uh, the submarine force, and uh, it is amazing to me that there are two uh, guppy World War II uh, submarines that are still in service. One actually did a war patrol, uh, as I recall, one of the last war patrols, if not the last war patrol uh, it, during uh, the Pacific War. So really uh, fascinating. Uh, Dove, uh, let me uh, ask you uh, very quickly, uh, not a lot of time, but a couple of things I want to get your take on. First, the Saudi uh, Israeli uh, agreement, Mohammed bin Salman, as we discussed on the program, said he was willing to uh, engage in a dialogue and to normalize relations with uh, Israel, but it was important to take Palestinian equities uh, into uh, consideration. Walk us through the meeting of the tourism ministers and where what the Israelis are prepared to do. I mean, the Biden administration has been working towards this uh, since almost taking office to build on the Abraham Accords. From from your standpoint, what are what are the things the Israelis would consider doing and can meaningfully do, given their strategy is not to have a two state solution, to have a one state solution, and actually make it impossible to have a two state solution ultimately, right? I well, mean, they've been yeah. digging out well, that foundation pretty in a pretty focused fashion. Yes. Well, let me start with the uh, Saudi the visit to Saudi Arabia. Um, the tourism minister, uh, Mr. Katz, was attending the United Nations World Tourism Organization uh, event, 
And roughly at the same time, the Saudi ambassador was arriving in Ramallah. So that already should tell you something about where the Saudis think this all ought to go. Um, it's pretty clear that Saudi, that there's word coming out of Israel, and it's coming out of Israel, so you take it with a little bit of salt, um, that the Saudis are ready to walk away at this time from a demand for a Palestinian state. Now, there's still the question of, well, what do they demand? And they're not going to write off a Palestinian state. Um, clearly, the visit to Ramallah is a message to the Israelis that um, it, Palestine will remain a major issue for the Saudis, as it has to, because the Saudis are the, the custodians of the two holy mosques. And then there's Jerusalem, which is the third holiest city in Islam. Um so the way I read this is, is essentially a modified version of Israel's relationship with Iran when the Shah was, was in power, uh -huh. which was essentially everything but formal recognition. And it's a tourism minister. And there've been a lot, there are Israeli tourists uh, coming to Saudi Arabia, like there are Israeli businessmen coming to Saudi Arabia, like there are, American Jews who come to Saudi Arabia with Israeli stamps in their passports. I mean, things have that, like also the fact that now Saudi Arabia allows overflight rights uh, by Israeli uh, El Al aircraft. So things are moving along, but I, I think that one shouldn't bet the family farm that it's going to come to official recognition. Uh, it, 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 the problem is fundamentally Netanyahu's partners. And he's got two members of his cabinet with their supporters in the in the parliament, the Knesset, who absolutely don't want to give anything to the Palestinians. Nothing. As you say, it should be a one state solution, but their one state solution. And so as as long as Netanyahu fears going to jail, which he does, and as long as he knows that the only way he can stay out of jail is by remaining prime minister. And as long as he knows that the only way he can remain prime minister is by keeping these characters in his cabinet, it's just so hard to see how he can make any concession that's meaningful uh, on Palestine that'll satisfy the Saudis. We have just a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you about the extraordinary uh, capitulation uh, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, but what that means for a little bit uh, in, in a longer term. I just want to clear the record because I think much of the reporting is very inaccurate. There is a perception by some that Armenians seize the peace of our, uh, Azerbaijan as opposed to uh, that is uh, an area, this area, Nagorno-Karabakh, is uh, historic Armenia. It's been populated by Armenians, uh, Armenians for millennia. It is with the, and, and it was originally Armenian territory that Stalin, right, as he was sort of dismembering Armenia historically, where whenever Armenia has been bigger than Georgia, Georgia has been weaker. So as a Georgian, he shrank the size of Armenia by giving away a lot of its territory, Nakhichevan, uh, as well as Garabah and other uh, lands. Um, you know, so this isn't a new construct, uh, you know, starting 30 years ago with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But it's a remarkable capitulation. Seventy-five thousand, I think, Armenians, as of the time of this recording, you know, a little bit more than half the population of Armenians living in that enclave uh, have uh, gone to Armenia, uh, and Azerbaijan is is just going to take over uh, that territory. The question is that this doesn't satisfy Azeri interests, nor frankly Turkish interests. And there is a concern that actually the Armenian Republic might be on borrowed time in less than a year, actually, by the time the Azeris want to cut through the bottom part of the country, as we've discussed, that area called Zangazur, um, because encirclement is the key. The reason Gharaba uh, surrendered was basically it was completely isolated. The Lachin Corridor was cut off and the Russians weren't helping. What does this tell us? Because actually there's been nary a peep from the international community as this happened. And so why wouldn't this embolden Azerbaijan and Turkey? Uh, Israel was an important uh, armorer uh, of the Azeris as, as, as the Turks were. I mean, not a, not a single peep as this tragedy has unfolded. 
And I can't imagine it's going to dissuade Azerbaijan from wanting to take that bigger bite in the future, which I think sadly also serves Turkish interests. I mean, the Organization of Turkish States met in Nakhichevan days before the anti-terror operation that uh, precipitated this collapse. I mean, your sense on where this is going and whether anybody really will care, you know, if Armenia is dismembered in a year's time. The first thing uh, that I do have to say is if you start going back to history, then you've got a problem between Palestinians and Israelis that will never get settled. And Crimea, of course, was handed over by uh, uh, Khrushchev um, to uh, Ukraine and the Russians say it's really theirs. And and so if you look at where things stand now, um, you're absolutely right. The world just isn't paying attention. However, it's one thing to ignore wrongly, I would say, but ignore uh, what's going on. It's quite another thing to ignore the swallowing up of an entire state. And that's for several reasons. One, because it sure looks like what Russia is trying to do to Ukraine. Two, for the Israelis, if they sit back and, you know, and and are not neutral, which is bad enough on Ukraine, but actually help the Azeris to swallow up the whole country, they have just lost their argument as to why they should exist, since there are many Arabs who think they shouldn't. And finally, you know, it if you look back, the, the, the specter of what happened to Czechoslovakia, even though it's it's almost 100 years ago, uh, the idea that the Nazis started with Sudetenland and took the whole country and nobody did anything about it, and that helped precipitate World War II, I think that that nightmare will stop, in particular, the Turks from doing very much because they will find that they're under tremendous pressure from NATO far more than anything else that uh, they've been under. Um, and frankly, the economic pressure would stop them. It, it's not worth it for them. It's not worth it for the Israelis. And quite frankly, something like that might even get the United States to pay attention. So while you have a a true tragedy in Nagorno-Karabakh, no question about that, Um, going beyond that to say it'll be swallowed up, I don't think the Azeris can do it on their own. And I don't think the Turks and the Israelis will be stupid enough to help them out. Um, uh, Certainly, uh, certainly hope so. But it but it it also is interesting. The Russians really uh, have uh, stayed out of this, uh, again, punishing Armenia because it recently had military games with uh, exercises. with. Well, look, I mean, what do you want from Putin? I mean, are you Uh, expecting are you expecting any kind of decent bone in that man's body? No, 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 I'm I, not, not at all. Um, <laughs> let me ask, and, and in 30 seconds, uh, because yeah. uh, we are really uh, over time, uh, the former president has made some extraordinary allegations uh, and charges against the chairman and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I think a lot of this is over fanned because he had the temerity along with Mark Esper to stand up and say we should not have been there uh, at the Lafayette uh, Park rally. So that was seen as a a uh, sign of disloyalty. And, you know, unfortunately, r- r- Republicans have descended on the man, uh, even if you can disagree with some of his statements or maneuverings. But that's what chairmen do. Once chairman, you pick a chairman, they will maneuver in ways you may not like them to maneuver. And it doesn't matter whether the chairman's name is, you know, Mike Mullen, but Colin Powell or, or anybody else. Um, what do you make of this as a longtime observer uh, where now apparently the chairman is concerned about his family, uh, the safety of his family. Well, look, I mean, are you expecting anything more from Donald Trump than you expect from Vladimir Putin? Uh, I'm not surprised. He's gone after judges. He's probably tried to mess with witnesses if he possibly could. This is just another example of it. The real, the real thing I think he's trying to get at is not so much Millie. He's trying to send a message to the new chairman, Chairman Brown, not to do anything close to what Millie has is alleged to have done if Trump is back in the White House. He I doubt he would fire Brown, but he wants Brown to toe the line if he's president. And I think that's really what he's thinking about. Um, what he's done to Millie is disgusting. As you say, uh, people can argue with Mark Milley about various things. But, um, you know, being attacked by Donald Trump, uh, as long as your family is safe, is kind of a badge of honor. 
Um, and so the real question is, would CQ Brown put up with uh, what whatever Trump asks for? And I think the answer is no. I think Brown, like Milley, ultimately is a military person who serves his country, not a particular individual. Um, and I would point out that, uh, you know, it wasn't long after uh, General Brown was named chief of staff of the United States Air Force that he made that extraordinary video uh, after uh, George Floyd's death. Uh, that was very, very powerful. And, and he was somebody who was picked for the job by uh, Donald Trump. Anyway, uh, everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. This is a little bit of an extra edition, uh, and we appreciated it this exceptionally late hour, but a lot uh, to discuss. Thanks very much to all of you. Hope you guys have a terrific weekend, a terrific week, and look forward to having you uh, back on again next week. Thanks very much, and thanks uh, to our audience for joining us, as you always do, and a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Tune in again on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. Until then, uh, hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see you again soon.